The Doctor Is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me. You just patted yourself on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person. I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept. Yeah. You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Thank you so much for joining me. This is, as the man said, the doctor is in. But he didn't say this. He didn't say this is E-Person Monday, which is a day we have set aside myself, my producer man, Andrew Kruchek, and I would include my call screamer man, Eric Dumont, but he doesn't call scream emails or e-persons. So, yeah, because I don't want to be linguistically insensitive by calling them males. As a matter of fact, two-thirds of them, maybe more, come from females or fee-persons. Can't really say female anymore. So we'll get to those in a little bit. Um, where am I with this? I had... As, as is typical, I had an, an opening monologue. Oh, yes, yes. This, is, this was sent to me, of course, by my producer man, Andrew Kruchek. He said, I've commonly heard people say, well, I've got to get it out of my system. Or a variant of that would be, I've gotten it out of my system. Now, what exactly does that mean? There's two levels to that. Let's take the uh, the more direct level. People are referring to venting their opinion or their feelings. Got to get it off my chest. There, I've had my say. I feel better now. By and large, it is a huge social relationship misconception to think that venting is good for relationships. It's not. Venting all too often is not an expression of some kind of rational, reasonable, calm, level-headed perspective. Venting all too often has a heavy emotional component. I gotta vent. Venting is good for dryers. It's not good for people. The notion that, therefore, once I say it, I feel better has a little bit of truth to it in the sense that you exhaust some emotional energy. Like tears, you know. Have a good cry, I feel better. Well, there's two reasons for that. One, uh, tears do have some chemicals in them that once they get out of our system does help a little bit. But good crying is usually exhausting too. So with exhaustion comes a, uh, a calmer state of mind or at least physiology. But venting has reverberations. In other words, what did, I, what did I say in my venting? Who did I hurt? The other problem with venting is it's easy to vent the more you vent. It becomes a style. It becomes a habit. Well, they, know how, they ain't going to know what I think. I'll tell it like it is. 
I speak my mind. I got it out of my system. Well, you did, but at what cost? Venting is really not a good way to express feelings. It hurts feelings. It lets emotions run a little too wild. There's a big difference between telling you what I think about something or what I might feel about something than venting, getting it out of my system. There, I've said it now, I feel better. Well, you may think you feel better because now you think you're understood, but you may not be understood. You may have just hurt somebody or verbally assaulted them or put a major ding in that relationship. But here's the other aspect. This is, I think this is the broader social aspect. I got to get it out of my system or I never got it out of my system. You know, I hear this from people who want to leave marriages when they say, well, I met my spouse when I was 17 and I never really got a chance to get to know the opposite sex or to date around or to get to meet new people and to see. I, I, never, I never got it out of my system. They refer to that. And it was used as a justification. Therefore, I better go back and experience what I didn't experience so I could get it out of my system. Well, you're not going to get it out of your system. What you're going to do is you're going to bring it into your system. Well, you know, I got I to, gotta, I, you know, I, I never got a chance to, when we first got married and we had a kid right away quick, I really never got a chance to, to play golf and I always wanted to play golf and I really, I know I'm getting into it a little too much and playing two times a week like this, you know, four hours at a time and taking a lot of time away from our marriage, but I just got to get it out of my system. It generally works the opposite. You don't get something out of your system by repeating it. You tend to root it more deeply in your system. I've lifted weights as I've often mentioned, a long time. I, did, I haven't gotten that out of my system. As a matter of fact, it's become more of a habit than it ever was. So did I get it out of my system in my 20s when I went at it full bore? Therefore, good. Okay, I'm 28 years old now. I can, I can stop now. I got that out of my system. Typically, when people say, I got it out of my system, and they're satisfied with getting it out of their system, basically, they just outgrew it. I know an awful lot of people who have exercised, gotten into running, lifting weights, some kind of physical fitness, and quit. As a matter of fact, that, that's more the rule than not. Most people have a, a spurt, a phase of getting into something like that, and then it fades away. They, they quote-unquote got it out of their system. Well, they didn't really get it out of their system like it was something they had to expunge. It was something that they just either tired of, lost motivation for, just didn't want to follow through with it anymore. Very common. Getting it out of my system is kind of the reverse of what actually happens. If you embrace for example, a certain kind of sinful conduct. You don't get it out of your system. You make it a habit. It doesn't go away. Or, for example, you didn't get it out of your system. You outgrew it. A lot of the stuff that 
that I used to take great enjoyment in. And I thought, wow, this is, this is quite a pursuit. I don't pursue anymore. It's not because I got rid of it. It's not because I got it out of my system. It's because I just moved on. So there's two levels to this. One, of course, is the level of venting. I got to get I got to get my thoughts and my feelings out of my system. I got to express them. I got to say it and I'm going to get it out and then I feel better. No, you don't. You may feel a little more exhausted. You may feel some self-satisfaction that you said what you wanted to say. But the question becomes, what are the uh, effects of that and on who? And simple rule, the more you vent, the more you get into the habit of venting. Venting is not a good thing generally and getting it out of your system can sometimes be used as a justification which is I never got it in my system and I think I need to experience that you know I've known my wife ever since I was very young and I never really experienced getting to know any other women so how do I know she's so special without having gone through it getting it out of my system not uncommonly I will listen to someone whose marriage is on the rocks. And one of the patterns that their spouse will describe is he or she is spending more and more time with their single friends or their divorced friends. They're palling around a lot. They're gone out and they're gone places. And we're married and I'm at home taking care of the kids and she says that Friday night's her night with the girls and all these girls are single and all these girls are gone to the bars and all these girls yeah is she getting it out of her system or is she putting it into her system of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? <laughs> I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping! Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, 
Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. I wasn't really letting the music play an extra long time. I had taken a bite of a cookie, and I had to let the cookie go down with a sip of my coffee. What a brutal job, cookies and coffee. I'm Dr. Ray Grandy. Thanks for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. This is uh, E-Person Monday, where I get a chance to roll through the E-Persons that come into my computer or as it were my phone. Dr. Ray, I'm in a corn ship and it seems there may be potential for an engagement in several months. My boyfriend and I have been discussing lots of hypotheticals regarding marriage. Who gets invited and all those details. So I I think what she's saying is they've been discussing the actual marriage reception or the, or the uh, ceremony. I was talking with my mom about it as well. The problem or the questions that I have about this involves some of my relatives. It seems to me that one is obligated to invite all of their relatives if they're in the country. Well, that's not necessarily true, okay? You, you depend, depending on a lot of things, how many relatives do you have? I mean, if you're going to have a 400-person wedding, you can't afford a 400-person wedding. you got to cut it off at a certain relative distance. You know, you're not inviting your second cousin. Or you're not inviting your cousin and all of her kids. So you you got you got to make decisions. And unfortunately... There are people who take it personal. I didn't get invited. She invited my sister. She didn't invite me. When, for example, you make decisions like, I haven't seen them in 12 years. They don't care for me. They don't come around. It's not necessarily going to step out and go, well, it's social etiquette to invite them. But our writer has a, a different angle on this. Not necessarily logistics. My relatives, none are Catholic or practicing if they are Catholic. There are moral issues too. Uh, My one relative uh, has been twice divorced and is now cohabitating. Wherever she goes, he goes. He was at my dad's funeral. My mother and I felt very uncomfortable with it all. My dad never cared for him in the sense that what they're doing is immoral and we don't condone such lifestyles or behavior. This is dad's sister. I don't know if she got offended or mad at being excluded or if it was her boys were invited but her living was excluded. 
And if her brother is invited but not her, there's no telling how she'd react. Am I obligated to invite her? Well, I guess my question would be, you can invite who you wish. What you're really saying is, well, first of all, it's not a sin if you don't invite her, obviously. You're not obligated. The question becomes, how upset will she get if I don't? That's, that's a lot of times the question. It's not a matter of, am I allowed? Of course you're allowed. It's not a moral issue. But the question for the person is, what will I have to deal with afterwards? Will this person write me off? Will I ruin the relationship? What will happen? Uh, uh, let's see. Is there a non-offensive way at handling this when and if the time comes? No. No. Because what will you say? Will you say, well, I'm, I'm really not inviting you because uh, eh, I'm not that close to you and your lifestyle is not something I really respect. So, And, and my dad wasn't close to you at all either, so therefore I don't really... This is, this is my marriage day and I don't really want to just do stuff on the basis of social obligation. You could say that. <laughs> that'll blow up if you offer no explanation then she's going to decide on her own what your motive was and that'll probably cause a problem so there's really no way short of just simply inviting her but there's there's more to it than this we've had problems with these relatives before I especially feel uncomfortable because the guy she lives with received communion at my dad's funeral when he knows he shouldn't have done so. Well, do you know he knows he shouldn't have done so? But, okay, you're going to assume he shouldn't have done so. And, and this isn't something I want to encourage or condone. The other relative I'm concerned about is my mom's brother. And so she talks about different ways that the people have pretty much morally abandoned the Catholic faith regarding living together or regarding divorce and remarriage. She says, I am reluctant to have them, or at least her, at the wedding because of the moral issues. Could I just invite my uncle? Or would it be fine to come up with a reason for only inviting some relatives and not others? I'm worried. I'm not worried about family cohesion with my relatives since I don't think there's that much already. I'm just not sure how I would not invite them. I don't want to be mean or rude. But I also don't want to encourage behavior contrary to church teaching. This is my opinion. Not a moral theologian, obviously. Not a priest, obviously. You don't condone their behavior by inviting them to your wedding. Similarly, uh, for example, on a much closer relationship, if you have a daughter living with her boyfriend, you don't con condone her behavior by including her and even him at family gatherings. You don't. You may choose not to, but if you do include them, you're not condoning it. I'm going to assume that they know where you stand on all this. I'm going to assume that they know that you're a practicing Catholic with certain moral standards that you hope to adhere to and that uh, they don't. So here's the question. One, no, there's more than one question. One, do you have an obligation? Well, no, you don't. You can invite whoever you want. Two, 
how will they react? Well, they're going to react bad. I mean, you can almost you can almost guarantee that. So if if your concern is to not cause family rifts beyond what they already are, because you seem to imply that these are folks that are you're not real close to anyway, then you got to consider that. Throw that into the decision making hopper. Three, you're not saying I morally agree with what you're doing by inviting them to your wedding. If that were the case, I think you'd kind of have to have uh, an ability to look into the lives of many people because some of them may be committing some pretty serious sins that you know nothing about. What about pornography? Hmm? Got a 19-year-old cousin. He's heavy into pornography. You don't know it. Or he's heavy into all kinds of premarital physical relations. You don't know it. Well, Dr. Ray, that's exactly my point. If I don't know about it, then I can invite them. But if I know about it, and then they're, they're blatant in what they're doing, then that's a different case. Yeah, yeah, no. I think the core of the issue is, do you not invite someone that is a relative, a relatively close one, too. These are aunts, uncles, to your wedding because they're living outside the Catholic faith that they either profess or have rejected. Well, no, no, you don't. That's, that's not making any statement. That's not saying, therefore, I simply agree with what you're doing because I've invited you to my wedding. They may think that. They may think, yeah, well, good. See, she's, she's putting a stamp of approval on the way we live. That's not what you're doing. And you can't control how they're going to interpret it. From your perspective, Dr. Ray, what would you suggest? This, this may be a matter for a priest, I'm suggesting. However, I'd like to know if there's a way around all this without causing too much division. Not that it doesn't exist already. I can't say I'm really close to some of my relatives, since I'm not. But I hate to think they'll be mad at me for ages. <laughs> well, they probably will. <laughs> they probably will. There was a recent episode on uh, Everybody Loves Raymond where Marie, the mother, matriarch of the family, hadn't talked to her sister for seven years. Why? Because of where the sister was sat at the reception. And that led from one point of contention to another that after seven years they, they still had a huge rift over this. That, unfortunately, is not unusual. And I think that whatever tenuous relationship you have with these relatives will only be made more tenuous. So if you want to avoid that, invite them to your reception and recognize that you're not making a moral statement by inviting them. If that were the case, where do you draw the line? Do you never invite them to... Christmas? Do you not go to their birthday party? I mean, where do you draw the line in associating with them? Dr. Ray, it's the most special day, one of the most special days of my life, so therefore including them in the most special day of my life is saying that I want them to witness and be a part of it. <sighs> yes and no. Oh, boy, I hate to talk like a psychologist. 
Yes, it is a very special day in your life. But we're still back on the question of what are you saying by inviting them? You're saying nothing other than I invited you to my wedding and my reception. There's no doubt in my mind, I had 300 people at my wedding. I had no doubt in my mind that some of them probably were living quite counter to the faith. <laughs> some of them quite counter. But that was not my place to say, all right, therefore, if I judge that you're not living the way you should be living, then, uh, then don't come around. with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. In the world of religion, what constitutes a promise? What constitutes a vow? How do they differ? The Catholic Catechism states that the Christian is called to make promises in a number of different ways, such as in baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders. A Christian may also make promises that are uniquely his own, such as promising to say certain prayers, give alms, or make a pilgrimage. Remaining faithful to a promise we make to God demonstrates the respect due Him and His divine love. A vow is a deliberate and free act of devotion in which a Christian dedicates himself to God or promises God some good work. The Church recognizes as especially exemplary those who embrace the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Ray Grandy, program Doctors in, very end of the program, E-Person Monday. Nice to have you with me. This is E-Person Monday. Hello, Dr. Ray. I have a strange relationship with my mother-in-law. And she parenthetically states, which is obviously unremarkable. <laughs> Her visits have, over time, become occasions where I am highly anxious. She is a lamb to my husband, 
and to my children. But she acts towards me in a way that, though subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, feel targeted and oftentimes bizarre. She does help a lot when she's here. And every day I get on my knees and ask the Lord to wipe the slate clean and to give me the fortitude and grace to begin the day without bitterness. At issue, Dr. Ray, is the ways she comes at me, I feel, are ways that look benign on paper. Now, I got I to gotta see what our writer means about that further on here. Or at any rate... <laughs> are ways that make me seem paranoid when I mention them. And she gives an example here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the example. It is subtle things that make me feel like I'm starting to go nuts when she's here. <laughs> Gaslighting. There is no one else with whom I struggle to this degree or in this way. I suppose I'm wondering how benign her behavior really is. And since sometimes I'm certain she's being intentional and nasty, even if subtle, I find her behavior to be very strange, and I wonder where the bottom is. Okay, well, let's jump on this. From a very broad perspective, you have... And I know this is going to sound funny. You have a lot more power than you're giving yourself credit for not to be distressed and anxious over her conduct. So often what happens in interpersonal relationships where we think that someone has it out for us in some way, either subtly through comments they make or various behaviors. We think it's automatic that we have to get as upset as we do. It's not. They can't make you get any more upset than you don't cooperate with. And I've gotten in trouble for saying that on this, on this program before. People have sent me emails. Dr. Ray, are you saying people can't hurt you? Are you saying people can't be mean and make you feel bad? Oh, they can do that. But the degree to which they do, especially with words, nobody's punching, and punching you in the head. With words or little subtleties like what seems to be happening here is heavily up to you. I mean, you could look at this and say, that's the way she is. She does this stuff. Ha! Well, she can try all she wants. So what? Now, it may be that for whatever the reason, and we don't know because she's not going to come clean with it, that she has some hostility toward her daughter-in-law. Who knows why? She, she took her son from her. She became the number one woman in her son's life as opposed to mom, who was the number one woman in her son's life for all those years. I, who knows? It could be, it could be a realistic Hostility, which is my daughter-in-law's not the easiest person to get along with, and I don't really care for her much. It could be. Or it could be that mother-in-law's got all kinds of quirks, and she hides them from most other people, but she's going to let daughter-in-law feel the brunt of them. 
Who knows? And my suggestion is you don't ferret it out. You look at it for what it is, which is she does this stuff. All right. Now, you say you get down on your knees, pray for the fortitude and grace to not be bitter. That's nice, but it isn't necessarily the strength not to be bitter. It's kind of the apathy not to be bitter. And by that, I mean you don't have to grit your teeth and endure this kind of thing because she did it again. There she goes, did it again. No, the fact that she did it again is no surprise. It's kind of what she does. And she hides it from everybody. And when you say these things to your husband, or maybe anybody else that you say these things to you, they look at you like, no, I don't see that in her. I don't see that kind of behavior in her at all. She's a sweetheart. Like you said, she's a lamb. The key here for you not to be anxious around your mother-in-law is, one, to recognize this is what she does, and this is probably what she will continue to do until she slips up and other people start to see it. Dr. Ray, it's been years. Nobody's seeing it. She's very good at this. Okay. But ultimately, somebody could pick up on it. She's not going to do all these things in isolation to you. Some of this time, she's going to pull one of these little subtle stunts, and somebody's going to see it. So that's one. Two, you don't have to have her approval. You don't even have to have her liking you. You got a husband whose mother, for whatever the reason, at least as you perceive it, and you've admitted you could be wrong on some of this stuff, as you perceive it, has little subtle ways of digging at you. How long will you allow her to continue to make you feel this distressed when she's around? I would think at some point you'd say, well, let's see. She's done this 74 times. Why am I surprised when there's a 75? Why do I keep expecting that she's going to correct? Why do I feel so terrible that she's singled me out? Well, she treats everybody else nice. What is it about me? I don't know, and you don't know. But what is clear is that as long as you allow her to do these things that irritate, agitate, distress you, you're going to be anxious when she's around. It's that straightforward. Use this relationship to build upon. And by that I mean this. To build upon your ability to not let people get to you when you think they're being unfair. You really only have one question to ask yourself about your mother-in-law's conduct toward you. Is it indicative of anything that is true about me? In other words, is this, is this something I can correct in me? That's my obligation. If after honest self-appraisal, I conclude it's not, I conclude it's her, then you can't control her. And by being anxious, you're giving her massive amounts of power. This is not a reflex. She acts bad, I get sad. She acts bad, I get mad. Not necessarily. There's a, there's, there's a middle link in there, and that is how you choose to interpret her. 
Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John, chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle. How does the enemy act when a person moves closer to God? St. Ignatius of Loyola writes in the second of the 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, for then it is proper to the evil spirit to bite, sadden, and place obstacles, disquieting with false reasons, so that the person may not go forward. The enemy bites on a person's thought, causing inner distress, worry, creating anxiety. The enemy's bite unsettles the person. The enemy does not want us to have peace of heart or happiness when we are growing in our service of God. The enemy also brings sadness. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, A sadness with respect to God, to prayer, to the love of others in God, that is, to everything involved in the pursuit of God's will. The enemy also brings obstacles and false reasons that disquiet, disrupting our interior peace. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Hitting on all eight cerebral cylinders. Yeah, you know those big V8 engines that we had when I was a kid? I had a, a 394 barrel. They don't have the acceleration or the motor power that some of these smaller engines have with their different kind of carburation involved, fuel injections. It's, it's incredible. Quite a bit different. I have a 65 Mustang. And people say, well, they don't make them like they used to. And my response to that is, well, it's a good thing. Mustang is a, it was definitely a classic kind of car. It's got a lot of chrome on it and everything, a lot of lines. But engineering-wise, well, first of all, there's no, there's no head protector. There's only a lap belt. Certainly, obviously, no airbags. The... Motor is hot coming through the motor wall onto your feet. There's a lot of engine noise and there's rattles. Uh, <laughs> just in a whole bunch of ways, the engineering has so radically improved, and not to mention the technology of the whole thing. You know, it had window cranks and all, all manner of uh, motor issues that would leave you stranded on the road like my 72 Cutlass used to do. But I digress. This is E-Person Monday. This is a woman that I met at a recent talk. I was with my husband at your talk at St. Mary's last night. In reflecting upon your talk, I had a couple of questions. 
One, how do you ensure your children behave for other people, babysitter, grandparents, godparents, if they are weak in authority? When my husband and I go out every once in a blue moon. My first question is, do you go out every once in a blue moon because you don't trust your kids to behave well for whomever watches them? That's a common reason, by the way. And it's interesting how I've often said that discipline, discipline skills, discipline comfort, discipline firmness, can reverberate into the marriage in ways that we we don't connect the dots. This may be one, which is if she and her husband don't get to go out much because they can't trust the kids to act cooperatively with who watches them, then they don't go out much, and they rob themselves of their own time together going out. My wife and I, as I've mentioned before, had... Uh, 10 of our children, all 12 and under. So for anybody to watch them, my parents, anybody, it cost us uh, $84 an hour plus benefits and a 401k. But we had a very strong response to them giving any trouble to anybody who watched them. Now, in response to our writer's question, how can I ensure that my kids will behave? You can't ensure it. What you can ensure is you'll do something about it. And then in, in time, that will make the misbehavior less and less. If we found out that you misbehaved for grandma or you misbehaved in your CCD class or you misbehaved at preschool, whatever it was, whomever you misbehaved for, whether they handled you well or whether they didn't, you had to answer to mom and dad. And you were going to answer in a way of a significant loss of freedom and privileges. This was not going to be, a, okay, well, you're going to go sit on the steps for three minutes because you did that. No, 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 no. No, there were multiple consequences to this. For a couple of reasons. One, we will always love you. No matter what you do, we will love you. You're our children. Other people, even close relatives, may not quite have the patience that we do because you're not their children. Now, grandma and grandpa might, and some relatives might, but for the most part, other people are not going to have the depth of love that we have for you. So therefore, without that depth of love, they may also be more irked by your behavior than we are. So we have to make sure that you don't mistreat them. We want to hear from people who watch you, supervise you. No problems. Very cooperative, very pleasant, very delightful. That's what we want to hear. So my first suggestion to you is let the kids know. And again, I don't know how old your children are, so that would depend upon what you can let them know. But to the degree you can, let them know that there will be significant consequences for misbehaving for other people. Now, if this is a three-year-old, then that's not going to happen. You can tell a three-year-old, big deal, is going to be forgotten as soon as you strap him in the car seat. 
But you can begin when the three-year-old comes home by saying you didn't listen to grandma. Now you go sit on the steps. You didn't listen to grandma. You're going to go to bed early. You didn't listen to grandma. You can't watch Dora the Explorer or whatever it is as the new shows are now. So that's the first thing I would suggest, that your discipline has to be extra when they misbehave for others than for you. I had a second reason for this. It was big. When my kids acted up with someone else or in full view of someone else in public when they were with us, I lost business. That's right. I could hear people thinking, I'm not taking my kid to that guy. He can't even control his own kids. He calls himself a psychologist. Let's see what Mr. Psycho Man's going to do about this one. That's right. So cost me business. Didn't want to lose business. Now, there's a second part to her question. How do you address issues with other people's children when spending time as a group? Oh, if the other people's there, that's bad grammar. If the parents of those children are present, I don't do a thing. These are not my kids. Now, if they're hurting my child, you're going to come over and punch my child. I'm going to take my child out of the situation and comfort my child. Or if my kids are misbehaving as part of the group, the whole group's misbehaving. My kid just happens to be in the mix. Well, I'm going to deal with my kid, even if no other parent deals with their kid. Why? Because I'm responsible for mine. I can't, I can't do anything about what you do or don't do with yours when we're in a group. Now, if your kid is particularly provocative and unruly and nasty, I'm going to keep an eye on that so that I can protect my kid from your kid's questionably social behavior, shall we say? That's how I'd approach it. So, simple rule, if those other parents are there, uh, nothing. Now, if you're the parent responsible for the group, you're the supervisor, then I would discipline those kids in some mild way. I'm not going to discipline them perhaps like I would discipline my own, but I might make them sit. I may make them withdraw from the activity. I may take from them what they used to throw at the other kid. Whatever it was, I'll respond to it in some kind of consequential way uh, if I'm the adult in charge of that group activity. If I'm the adult in charge of that group activity and their parent is there, I would be less likely to respond. I would protect the other kids as best I can. But when the other parent's there, typically you only get yourself in a lot of trouble. And, and really, you could raise the question, is it really my place to discipline somebody else's kid no matter what they're acting like? I'm Dr. Ray. Brought to you by the nonprofit Seton Home Study. Hi, everybody. Dr. Ray Garendi here. You thinking about homeschooling? Seton Homeschooling, 40 years of experience, 17,000 current students, pre-K through high school. They provide the books, the lesson plans, the counselors, the grading services, the tests. That's right, pretty much everything. My wife and I use Seton, some of our children. Tell you this, two of them got perfect ACT scores in verbal. And overall, the Seton students scored more than 100 points above average on the SAT. 
over 30% higher on English and reading on the ACT. It's a rigorous program. You want to give the very best to your kids? Trust me on this one. Go with Seton. It is a beautifully rigorous academic program. Go to seatonhome.org. That is seatonhome.org. Now that the abortion problem has been returned to the states, we will most likely be called upon to give a reason for our pro-life activism. But this is more than a mere political issue. It's an opportunity to present the gospel of life. It's an opportunity to demonstrate the kingdom's view of this world and of human life. And the central question in this dispute is going to be, what is the status of preborn human life? Many Christians need to recognize that, yes, we have to do the political thing, but we have greater opportunities here. We have an opportunity to engage people about the very meaning of life itself. I mean, that's why John Paul II wrote the gospel of life. He didn't just write some sort of political anti-abortion tract, right? He's talked about the gospel of life. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Still looking through the E-Persons. Here we go. Thanksgiving is coming up. And like many families, uh, gathering is pretty important to me. Good food is a must. (laughs) As well as the main attendees are a necessity for me to feel like I'm not missing out on what makes my Thanksgiving Thanksgiving. (laughs) Okay, here comes the family part of it. I have four brothers, and my wife has four siblings who have recently moved to a new home and have expressed to my wife and her brothers that she'd like to have Thanksgiving there this year. Consistently, it's been my wife and I who have people over and have the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving replete with arguments. (laughs) There's a lot of insight here. After a little waffling on my part, basically being immature and wanting it my way always, (laughs) My wife and I have come to the realization that it's not all about us, and it would be great for her sister to have the opportunity to do this, and we're fully ready to support her. Despite how well she cooks the bird and what the side dishes are. (laughs) Well, there was no response from my wife's brothers. So, stupid me, a.k.a. Mr. Comedian, a.k.a. Foot and Mouth, doofus decided to throw out a seemingly innocuous, oh, what a target phrase, seemingly innocuous group text that asked, what is everybody doing for Thanksgiving? To try to initiate the convocation. Oh, boy. What has come from it, sadly, has been some very nasty remarks by both my wife's sister and her brother. Oh, gosh where they are attacking each other. I feel horrible that what I asked has been a platform for the two siblings to attack each other. Side note, I don't think either one of them will want to be together for Thanksgiving. I've since apologized that my question spawned this back and forth. 
Well, oh boy, it's not only the two of them at this point. Now, two of the brothers and the one who owns the house are now talking about the other brother moving out and living with his sister. Oh, gosh, Dr. Ray, the details are dizzying and I'm knowing. And I'm wondering if an, a, a tome would be imp more important to get the facts straight. I'm thinking that going back in time to stop myself from typing the text is plan A. <laughs> and I'm hoping to find the keys to the time machine. Just sigh of that not working. You, Dr. Ray, are a more appropriate plan B. My action is to apologize, which I did and will continue. Well, you don't need to continue. You did. Stop texting for a while. I really should listen to my wife and just zip it and, of course, pray. But what can I do? Assuming they are open to me trying to fix things. And how do I feel less like a heel that caused more harm than good? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you an excuse or a justification. I'm not so sure this is all you. If, in fact, one what seemed to be very benign question, hey, what's going on this Thanksgiving with everybody? Caused all this? There had to be, there had to be some dynamics going on underneath all of this. Had to be. So I'm not, I'm not sure you can fix those. Maybe you could send out another text, run it by your wife first, have her correct it for grammar and content, say uh, we're willing to have it at our house, or, or send this text to the sister, who I'm going to assume still wants to have it, and you say, what can we do to help her? What can we bring? And you're going to probably have to let those siblings fix it themselves. I, you've apologized. You said I meant nothing by it. I was just asking how we're going to all get together this Thanksgiving. And you said something interesting way up in the beginning of all this. You said, replete with arguments. I wonder what kind of arguments. About what? About religion? About political views? About child rearing? About what? And good-natured arguments? Or arguments that made people feel ill at ease? Arguments that reflected some underlying friction, which just manifested itself now as you guys have moved out of the standard every year at our house into something else so I don't really have any clue and I don't think you do either as to what exactly is going on with your relatives but I think probably you you might want to stay out of most of this and if anything figure out exactly what you're going to do for Thanksgiving where you're going to go because if sister is still having it then you go there and I would wonder if a few of them are not going, and I'm still still kind of unclear on all why. Hmm. Thanks for joining me here on The Doctor is In on this E-Person Monday. Good Lord permitting. Talk to you tomorrow where we can banter and badinage and persiflage back and forth about the stuff of life. Thank you so much for joining me. Walk with God. His patience is infinite. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.